Well, it is a pleasure to worship God with you this morning. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors. Welcome. Uh, It's my joy to open up God's Word with you. We are going through the book of Acts together, looking at the early churches, just the story of the early church and how God worked in them and through them. And we're saying, God, would you do in us what you did in them? And so if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 12. Turn on your smartphone or whatever. Uh, Begin to work your way there. I'll pray for us and then we'll jump in together. So, Father, we do come before you in the name of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit, asking, God, that you would do exceedingly more than we can think, ask, or imagine in this moment, believing that you have a word for us from your word to each person here. And so, Holy Spirit, would you make much of Jesus? Would you uh, comfort the afflicted? Would you afflict the comfortable? Uh, Just do your work in shaping Jesus in our lives and our hearts and our affections this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, it looks like summer has finally arrived in Colorado, and it's been a weird year for that, so I hope in your plans you have some, anyone done any pool time yet this year? A little bit of pool time, okay, so you you guys are good. Uh, when, When my kids were little and they were born in Japan, in Okinawa, Japan, on a tropical island, uh, Mondays was our, my day off. It was our family day, and almost every week we spent some time in or around water. So we'd go to the beach, we'd go to the ocean, we'd go to the pool. We were just in the water all the time. And then as the kids would get older, they'd move from the kiddie pool to the process of learning how to swim. And so every parent knows that process a little bit probably where you're, you're in the pool, on the side of the pool, and your kid is clinging to the side and you're like a foot away and you're just saying, come on, you can, you can do it, trust me, swim to me. And, and you, get a, you get two feet away the next time, right? You, you know this process? Not if you know the process, if you've done this. Okay, so some of you have, have taught that. So all of our kids in their time and in their way, eventually uh, they're all good swimmers now. But some of them took longer than others. And, and my daughter Hannah is kind of laughing because I told her I'm going to throw her under the bus a little bit here. Uh, but I got her permission, right, Hannah? We're good? Okay, so Hannah, she in particular, and she just had a lot of fear with that. So she would get to the side of the pool and hold on, and, and, she's, and I'm like, are you ready to go? And she'd, she'd nod, and I'm like, okay, come on. And she'd, she'd be like, I, I can't. <laughs> and, uh, and then the tears would come. And, and so we tried various means uh, of kind of wooing, like, come on, you could do this. Come on, you could do that. I tried intimidation. That didn't work. Uh, you have to do this. Uh, we, we sent her to, to swim school. Like, if anyone could do it, it's the nice teenage lifeguard that is teaching all the kids. And she still was not having it. Like, Hannah, you, you got it. And so just kind of employing her. Now, again, why, was it, why were we adamant about this? Well, two things. One was her safety. We spent a lot of time around water and at the pool, and uh, we, we knew that uh, being a, a, a kiddie pool one foot deep wasn't going to provide for her the, the means necessary to survive in, in, in the situation. So for her safety, it was imperative that we teach her how to swim. But the other thing was for her joy, Like, uh, we just knew that if she was going to really experience all that swimming had for her, she was going to have to leave the kiddie pool and go to the deep end to swim with her sisters, to go off the diving board, to swim in the ocean where the waves are crashing. Like, she would need to know how to swim. So for safety and joy, uh, we, we would just work with her and woo her into the deep end. And I think Acts chapter 12 is God at the, in the deep end wooing us saying, come on, you can go deeper than that. 
for your safety, for your eternal perseverance, for your joy and your hope and confidence. You need to leave the kiddie pool and come into the deep end. And for your joy, there's more to experience in the presence and glory of God if you would just go from the kiddie pool to the deep end. Now, I became a Christian in the early 90s, uh, so that for about 10 years at that point, the American church had learned that, that you can make a really large kiddie pool and get a lot of people in the kiddie pool. People are cool with the kiddie pool, but, but it's a kiddie pool. And if you go to the swim, uh, swimming pool today and, and you see the kiddie pool and you see the babies, you're like, ah, oh, isn't that cute with their moms? And if, if they all get up and they take their kids out and, and left in the kiddie pool as a 50-year-old dude splashing around, you're like, what's wrong with that guy? Well, he's having fun. Yeah, but he's in the kiddie pool. Like, something's not right. Like, kids, come in. We're not getting in the kiddie pool because that guy, that's not right. It's not right to stay in the kiddie pool. And for our safety and for our joy, God is saying, come deeper. Come deeper. I want you to swim in the depths of who I am. And so that's what I see in this passage. A.W. Tozer was a pastor and a theologian from a couple generations ago. He wrote some books. Maybe you've read them. But, but he, has a, he has a phrase that he said I think is so good. He said, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you think about God, when you conceive God, is the most important thing about you. Why is that? Because what you think is ultimate reality is going to shape how you view the world, how you treat one another, what you pursue, what you love, what you think God is about. Like what, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And so if you have a, uh, have a kiddie pool kind of faith, in the end, that is a dangerous, dangerous kind of faith. If you have a faith that says, well, God exists to make much of me. God exists to kind of provide for me and make me healthy, wealthy, safe, secure, and give me my best life now kind of God. And that's dangerous because a day is coming for all of us when it does not seem like that is what God will, is doing in your life. A day is coming when the darkness will descend, pain will happen, suffering will happen, and if you live long enough on this side of eternity, you will get cancer. And in that moment, if you only have kiddie pool kind of faith, it's dangerous because I've seen it so many times. People say, God, why, why did you do this to me? I, I thought we had a deal. I thought if I did my part, you would do your part. So I went to church, I prayed the prayers, I gave the offering, and, and God, you've disappointed me, you've abandoned me, and I want nothing to do with you. And a lot of people walk away in that moment because they've believed in God that is a figment of their imagination, a God that is only about them to make much of them. But, but God is saying, no, that there's more. Go deeper with me. And, and when you go deeper for your safety and for your joy, you will find me in that place. So come deeper. That's what this passage is about. Acts chapter 12 is about uh, something specifically that's in the deep end of, 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 of the pool. It's throughout the Bible, but I'm going to start at the very end just to show you what this is. Uh, verse 24 of Acts chapter 12 has this repeated refrain in the book of Acts, and it says this, but the word of God increased and multiplied. So all I want you to see in that is at the end of our story today, uh, the God's purposes are going to be accomplished. 
And there's gonna be a lot of ups and downs, but, but this is true throughout the book of Acts that God's purposes are accomplished. So we talk often about the sovereignty of God, and the sovereignty of God is simply that his power and authority over all things. But I wanna talk something specifically that comes out of the sovereignty of God or is, a, is a, a, an outflow of God's sovereignty, and today it's called providence. God's good providence. That God is in his sovereignty providing something. He's going somewhere with the universe. He's going somewhere with every circumstance of your life. God is at work and his providence is his good application of his sovereignty. So that's kind of what what I want us to wrap our lives around. This is what the Bible constantly gets to. uh, But sometimes it does it in doctrine form. But, but here we're going to see it in narrative form. How does it play out? But just doctrinally, a couple, we see it all over, but just a couple verses to start with. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is reminding the church at Ephesus in chapter 1, verse 11, Hannah. Thank you. We're going to see this on the screen. He, he reminds the church of this. And I want you to see God's good providence. It's not just his sovereignty, but that he is directing all things. He says, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to, that's providence, to the purpose of him who works all things. So so all things, very special in the Greek means all things. Like anything you can think of, God is in some way, shape, or form uh, directing all things uh, according to the counsel of his will. God is infinite in wisdom, knowledge, power, authority, and we are not But praise God, he is. Verse 12, so that, that's the so that, that's the providence, so that we might be to the praise of his glory. What what, what Paul is reminding the church is that ultimately all things are are leading to this moment or an eternity of moments when we will be in his presence and we will enjoy him and glorify him. And as as finite beings, there will never be a time that that we will have figured God out. We will have... uh, exhausted our worship, that our joy will have been totally complete forever and ever. He is leading us to this point of absolute uh, amazing joy and confidence and in his presence. That's where this thing is going. That's his good providence. But he's doing something to get us to that point. Another place where we see God's good providence, uh, maybe the most famous line in the Bible, but, but I want you to see this is Romans 8, 28. It says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's his good providence. And, and we've got, to, this is in the deep end, but we've got to wrap our lives around it as an anchor for our soul. Because again, a day is coming when you won't see everything. God does not always reveal what he's doing in our lives. In fact, you don't want a God that you can figure out. If you say, well, I'll, fo- I'll follow God if, if he tells me everything about him and, and I know all that he's doing and, and then I can trust him and do it. Well, that God is a very small God and furthermore, it's, a, it's an idol because you are finite. God is infinite and he cannot even possibly condescend so that you can understand everything that he is doing. But we can trust in his good providence. That's what I think Acts chapter 12 is trying to show us in three scenes God's good providence. Let's look at the first scene, verse one. 
It says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. So, so let's just stop right there for a moment. Immediately we enter in the scene and there's this guy named Herod. You've probably read that name before. His grandfather, Herod the Great, was around when Jesus was born. And, and he was uh, given the authority by the Roman government to be king over the, the Jews and, and he was a, a megalomaniac. And he was insecure and he lived and did everything for his own glory. And so when he heard that, that the king of the Jews was born, he, he got jealous and he issued a command that all the firstborn and all the young boys in the area of Bethlehem be put to death. I mean, this was the heritage. This is the legacy. So now his grandson is, is on the throne and, and Herod, is, this guy is just like his grandfather. He is about his glory, his name, his renown, his power, his authority. And, and when you first see the story, it appears as if the one who has sovereign control in the moment is Herod. Whatever he wants to accomplish, even the most evil things, he's accomplishing. It says James was put to death. This is one of Jesus's three best friends. I mean, it's one thing that Stephen got, got killed, but now they're taking out the very top of the top of the leadership of the church. And if they take out James, like, is this movement even gonna keep going, they're wondering. By all accounts, with much pain and suffering and death and tears, it seems like, it seems like things are out of control, or at least they're only in control of Herod. And then Herod uh, kills James, and, and it's just one verse, just kind of a muted, kind of, he, he's forgotten. And as long as we're like Herod and we're trying to make a name for ourselves, we think, oh, it's all about our glory. But James is just forgotten in one verse, right? I th thought about this. How many of, of you could, could talk about your great-grandparents for more than three minutes? You will be forgotten, and you'll be forgotten far sooner than you realize. And that's okay if God is your God because his good providence is leading you somewhere. And no one is indispensable. Even one of the inner three of, 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 of Jesus' disciples is gone and yet God's good providence is going to be at work. So in the end of verse five, it says, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest reaching, struggling prayer for him was made to God by the church. So, so Luke just points out, but the church is praying. That's good and bad. That's good because we'll see that, that that's going to matter, but it's also bad in the sense that it, it brings to the forefront, again, the mystery of God's providence. Certainly this church was praying for James, and he's dead. And now they're turning their attention to Peter. And, and Herod has his sights set. Oh, oh, you liked what I did with James. Well, after the Passover, we're going to make a public spectacle. Peter's going to be executed. We'll have a big celebration. And the, the, the crowd is like, yeah, do that. We're, we're looking forward to that. 
And so they're praying earnestly, but it seems like, man, what a weak, what a weak tool. We're sending thoughts and prayers. Like, the world laughs at that. Like, oh, that's all you have in this moment is prayer? They pray. Well, we'll go on. Let's look at the second scene. It says, now when Herod was about to bring him out, so everyone knows he's going to be murdered in this moment. On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. This is amazing, right? Like, if you knew you were going to die the next day, would you be sleeping? Ah. Something in Peter has, has learned something along the way. He's sleeping between, but, but notice, he's sleeping between, between two soldiers bound with two chains, not just one, we got but two on him, and centuries before the door were guarding him. He's in a maximum security prison. There's multiple layers to this prison, and there's Roman guards at, at the gates, and they know that if anything happens to this prisoner, it's their life on the line. In fact, they will lose their lives because something is about to happen to this prisoner. But, but what you need to see in this moment, just the absolute desperation. It, by all means, it doesn't seem like there's any way out. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Jack Bauer. You know Jack Bauer? Yeah. Okay, there we go. So, so I, I didn't really know Jack Bauer. This started in 2001. I didn't watch the show, but, but I started watching the show the last couple weeks. I'm on season two. Some of you are like, oh, yeah, wait, wait till season whatever, you know. But no, I'm on season two, and I'm like, oh. And, and it's just counterterrorism. Uh, and, and just, it, it's, it's 24 hours, 24 episodes in real time, uh, just this most intense stressful uh, turns and like my wife won't watch it she's like it stresses me out I'm like yeah you're just stressed out for 24 hours it's great she's like no I'm, I'm not here for it and so I'm like okay I'm here for it and I'm like oh no there's a nuclear bomb going off in Los Angeles oh that's okay because Jack's gonna fly out of the city but then Jack's gonna die I'm like Duh, how are we gonna do this and the situation seems impossible and at one point in season two like he's captured by the terrorists and he's being tortured and, and they're torturing him so badly he dies I'm like no Jack He's dead. How is this possible? Like, what kind of writing is this? You can't kill the main character. Jack's dead. I'm like, and, and thank God for Netflix, right? Like, what kind of psychopath in 2001 is waiting a week while Jack is dead to see what happens? Just all week, Jack's dead. I'm like, and Jack's dead. I'm like, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. It's 3 a.m., this is 24. He's got six more hours. It's 3 a.m. What are we going to just blank screen for six hours? And then I'm like, wait a minute. This is season two. <laughs> There's seven more seasons. Seven more seasons. And Jack is on the cover of all the DVD cases. And so I'm like, next episode, skip the intro. What's going on? How are we going to get, he's dead. Oh, no. Someone busts in, and he's got a long syringe, stabs him in the heart, gets it, pumps it in, and he comes back to life, and he saves the day. You're like, whoa. You know what's happening in that moment? The directors and the writers are exercising a kind of providence over the storyline. Oh, they're in absolute control. 
But you get sucked into the moment, right? You're like, it's helpless. We don't know where to go. If you can understand that, imagine God who is, is uh, above all things, higher than the director, directing all things, is in control. And even for James, who loses his life, we know in Christ there's more seasons to be had. We know in Christ it goes on forever. So even that is a kind of gain in this moment, as dark and as painful as that is, there is an eternity of joy in the presence of God. And so we've got Peter, a.k.a. Jack Bauer, inside the prison cell. Got guards on the side, got chains. Got, yeah, their lives are on the line. Verse seven, and behold, or a good modern translation would be like, yo, check this out. An angel of the Lord. I mean, even in 24, they don't throw angels in there They're, because you wouldn't believe it. Like, what? <laughs> An angel of the Lord stood next to him and the light shone in the cell. So it's bright light, but, but Peter's sleeping, right? Like, he's apparently deeply sleeping. He struck Peter on the side. Like, that, that word is as forceful as possible. He smacked him upside the head and woke him up, saying, get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. He's just sleepwalking through this moment, right? Like he's done nothing for his rescue. God, through this angel, is doing everything. And so uh, where am I? Okay. Verse 10, thank you. When they had passed the first and the second guard, so multiple guards that just don't even see them, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. Well, actually, Luke, we know that God opened it for them, but we'll, we'll give you a pass. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, hmm, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Ding, ding, ding. Really, Peter? That's very observant of you. He just is kind of like, wait a minute. This is not even a vision. And he's like looking around and the angels left him and he's outside. And so he goes to where he knows the, the, the saints are gathered. Look at verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Again, we see that the church is on its knees. They're crying out. They're begging the Lord to, to intervene. We'll come back to that. Verse 13. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. So she hears some knocking. I'm sure it's kind of light knocking. Peter's not trying to draw attention to himself, but he's trying to get their attention. The servant says, the girl hears this, and she begins to work her way to the door. And then it says, uh, recognizing Peter's voice. This is not the first time in the Bible where a servant girl recognizes Peter's voice. Must have had a thick Galilean accent, like Galilean, Bir Birmingham, whatever. He's got a thick accent, right? And so they're like, oh, it's, it's Peter. And I love this because, I mean, the Bible has a sense of humor. In her joy, she did not open the gate, 
but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. She's like, I recognize the voice. That's Peter. And she leaves him and she's like, hey, church, stop praying. They're like, what are you talking about? Don't interrupt our prayer. No, stop praying. Peter is at the gate and they don't believe him, her. They don't believe her. I love that. It says, uh, uh, she ran in, reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. No, it's Peter. I heard his voice. And they're, they're so incredulous. They, they're, they're so doubtful of their prayers. They invent some heretical theology. And they say, no, it's not Peter. It's his angel. Okay, just step back for a moment. Like, even if you believe that, wouldn't you want to go see? Oh, there's an angel at the gate. No, no, we got to pray. No. She's like, no, Peter's out there. Meanwhile, Peter's like, come on. What are you doing? He's looking around. He knows the authorities are going to be alerted soon. I mean, it's Jack Power, right? Like, he's got to get some cover. And so he continues to knock at the door. And it says, uh, verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. They're shocked. What I love about that is that, that, that our prayer is such that we, we can pray beyond what we even believe. We can pray beyond what we even think God can do. Ephesians 3.20 says, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than what we think or ask. And so when they ask abundantly beyond what they thought or asked and God answers, they're shocked. That just means, hey, let's, let's pray big prayers and maybe he'll surprise us, but let's just go before him. Let's yearn. Let's get on our face. Let's, let's beg God. And, and, and so what we see is something else in God's good providence in this passage, that God can and does use any means necessary to accomplish his purposes. And in this passage, we just see three of them. We see a church on its knees praying. We see God working in supernatural ways by sending an angel and opening gates. And we also see well, we'll see God using ordinary means. Look at what it says, verse 17. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he's like, shh. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, tell these things to James, not the James that was killed, but the half-brother of Jesus who becomes a leader in the church and writes the book of James, and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So God uses ordinary means, just human reason and logic and wisdom as well. He's not foolish. He's, he's not going back to the gate. It's like, well, look at me, suckers. God let me out. Like, no, he, he is not presuming upon God to continue to supernaturally inter intervene. And yet God uses all of those things to accomplish his purposes. This is so important for us because it affects the way we live. We talk a lot about God is sovereign over the ends where this thing is going, who's going to be there, all the ends. But we often miss that in his sovereignty, he is sovereign over the means, the 10 million means of getting to the ends. So prayer, for example, sometimes people, they, they, when they don't understand the sovereignty of God, they'll say, well, why pray if God is sovereign? Well, a couple reasons. On a very surface level, it's because God told you to pray. But more than that, Prayer is the means by which God is going to accomplish certain things in this world. So your prayers matter. D 
Does he always answer them in the way we think or ask or hope? No, clearly not. James is dead. And yet in his sovereignty, sometimes he says he will answer. So when Jesus teaches on prayer, after teaching the Lord's Prayer, he gives some illustrations. He says, and basically he says, you got to sometimes just be consistent and persistent and knock and knock and knock before, the, before God answers. But, but he uses prayer. He, he uses means like, well, we, if God has predestined people and they're going to be there, then, then, then we don't have to do anything, right? No, you don't understand. The means God is going to use is people are going to share the gospel, they're going to love and serve people, and they're going to be drawn into the heart of God by someone going and telling them the gospel. Those are means God's sovereign over, and we are invited into it. See, what you need to understand is you are not a robot. God's system is not a fatalistic system that what's going to happen is going to happen. No, you, everything you do matters and will echo for all of eternity. Your prayers matter. Giving to the kingdom matters. Going matters. Serving, loving people matter. So you should be incredibly excited to know that not only does it matter, but God will ordain those moments for you and use you for all of eternity. That's an incredible invitation. And he'll use supernatural means if that's what's necessary and he'll use your reason and logic along the way as well. So let's be a church that understands God's ends, but let's be a church that says, God, use us. Use our prayers. Let's be a church on our face that prays. This pr church is praying earnestly. Do you know uh, Ryan and Lauren Fee, they started a monthly prayer night? Last, last month while the team was in Italy, we prayed for them. And, it, and it's open to the whole church, by the way. I don't know if you knew this. But a church who understands that God ordains the ends and the means gets on their knees. And wouldn't it be an amazing problem if all 250 of us on the next prayer night said, God, we're gonna get on our face. We're gonna, we're gonna reach for you. We're gonna show up at Ryan and Lauren's house and, and just kind of fill the streets to pray. I mean, if we understand what God is saying here, why wouldn't we do that? And, and, and so let's go on. Let's go on to the third scene because I'm getting a little preachy here. So third scene, we started with Herod who seemed to be in all control and all authority like a lot of politicians in our day. They make decisions and they're bad decisions and things go badly. So is God in control? Well, look at verse 20. It says, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyrus Sidon. And they came to him with one accord having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And so we, we cut scene, we go into Herod's life, and it's a political thing. And something, some rift has happened between Tyre and Sidon, and, and they are dependent on regions of Israel for their food. And so they're hungry. They're, they're, a famine is going to come to their land. So they're motivated to, to get some reconciliation with Herod. And so they invite him to come out and, and to give a speech. And they're just thinking, whatever it takes, We've got to make sure Herod feels good and he'll give us food. Okay, so you see their motivation. Look what happens here. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. Now, one of the things I love about this passage is this is one of those passages in the Bible that we have outside the Bible, secular historians affirm this story. 
Josephus, the first century historian, talks about what happened when Herod went to this region and gave this speech. And Josephus tells us, when it says he put on his royal robes, Josephus says that Herod had built into his robes, had woven into his robes uh, strands of silver. So when he goes out to the crowd and he sits on his throne, uh, the sun would glint off like glitter and he would kind of have this glow and aura about him. And he would be raised up in front of the crowd glowing and he gives not a speech, an oration. I mean, he's into it, right? Again, think of the motivation of the crowd. Think of the motivation of Herod. So what does the crowd do? And the people shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. You you are amazing. You are awesome. You're glorious. You're like a God, Herod. Herod is Jewish. Herod knows that there is no God but God. Herod knows that God will not share his glory with another, and Herod does not care. He's like, yeah, keep keep it coming. Yeah, they love me. They really love me. And he's just basking in the glow of the praise of man. And then Luke, who's a doctor, and oftentimes in Luke's gospel or another situation, when, when there's a medical thing going on, Luke will give us a medical insight. But in this case, actually, Luke's not going to give a medical insight. He's going to give a theological insight. It's Josephus that gives us the medical insight, actually. Josephus tells us that, well, well, here's what happened. So it says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. Josephus doesn't say that. He says, after giving this great speech where the crowd is shouting, you're a god, it says that he, he fell ill and he was writhing in pain, and for five days he writhed until he died. That's what Josephus tells us. But Luke gets to the core. He gets to the core of, of God's purposes in the, on the planet. It says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Josephus, I mean, sorry, Herod lived for his own glory. There's really only two ways to live. For your own glory, to make much of yourself, or for God's glory. And in the end, no opposition will win against God. Oh, there'll be attacks. We sang Luther's hymn, though this world with devils filled, your truth will triumph still. God will win in the end. And he's accomplishing his good purposes in your life and my life and in the church and forever and ever. And so it concludes, verse 24, but the Lord of the word of God increased and multiplied. His purposes are unstoppable. We know that is partially true because we're here 2,000 years later celebrating this God. But we know it's true forever and ever, but we need to be reminded of it. Because again, there's times where, like, like watching 24, you can just get lost in the episode of your life and think everything is lost. There's nothing but pain and heartache and death. And where is God? He's absent. And so we have to wrap our lives around this central truth that God's good providence is accomplishing his purposes in your life for your joy and his glory forever and ever and ever. And so we do that for one another. It's why we gather together. There are times where you're just gonna need another saint on your left or right to hear them singing God's praise because you can't believe it in the moment. 
And there are times when the darkness will descend and you need saints just to remind you of what's right and true and good. There's other seasons to be played out here. This is not the end. And even in those moments, it might get so dark that it, it is hard and almost impossible to know that God is accomplishing his purposes. And so what we need to do for one another and for ourselves in that moment, there is one sure thing that not even Job had. See, Job is this wrestling with pain and suffering and God's providence, and God is basically saying, I'm infinite and you're finite. You can't possibly understand what's going on here, but just know that I'm infinite and you're finite. Job did not have what we have. Job did not have a cross in history to to look on and see a God who is providentially accomplishing his purposes no matter what. A God who steps down from glory, who is worthy of all honor and praise and worship and says, I will lay that aside for a time so that the people that are seeking their own honor, glory, and praise will once again have a path back to the, the presence of the kingdom and the presence of God. And so Jesus goes to a cross and we have a cross that shows God's great love. The darkest moment in the history of the universe becomes the brightest moment in the history of the universe as the great exchange happens. He became sin who knew no sin that you and I might become the righteousness of God. And he transfers us into the kingdom of God through, by grace through faith. In the, that moment when everything is dark, remember the cross. God cares. God loves. And he uses the worst of this world for ultimately for his glory and our joy. So we cling to the cross. It's why we come to this table each week. It's why we sing the songs. It's why we worship together. Because a moment is coming in your life and mine where pain will come and the darkness will descend and all we have is the cross, but it is sufficient. It is our only boast and our only hope. May we be a people of the cross that understand God uses us for his ends. To that end, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for your rescue of Peter. Lord, I thank you for your rescue of James. Not from death on this side of eternity, but forever and ever he's in your presence and we get to meet him and all who have placed their faith and trust in you, you have transferred from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the son you love. Lord, I pray specifically for anyone in here who is wrestling with darkness. Uh, Maybe it's pain, suffering, loss, a relationship that is hard. Lord, you know it. You know it better than they know it. Lord, I pray that some way, somehow, Lord, your spirit would encourage them in this moment not to answer every question, but to answer the big question, are you present? Lord, may they see the cross. May, May they come to this table and see your broken body and shed blood and know that you are accomplishing your good purposes. Lord, may we be a people that walk under the sovereignty of your grace and mercy knowing that you will do all things for your glory and our joy. We ask in Jesus' name.